basketball, a game of giants. And there's number 99, George Mikan, one of the greatest. They try to go inside to Abdul-Jabbar. Chamberlain gets the ball. Nice play. Kia Tato, welcome back to the Step Back Pod with Sati and Sam as we record this, episode 5, profile 4 of everyone's favourite basketball history podcast. How are you feeling, Sam? Yeah, mate, feeling pretty good. The lungs are a bit under the weather, um, been vaping too much, but other than that, <laughs> feeling fantastic. Oh, you're going to concern the listeners, Sam. If anyone sees Sam around, tell them to stop vaping, it's a horrendous habit. It's not good for you, but yeah, nah, we're into Bill Russell now, we are into our first great player, obviously the game's greatest winner, Sadi. Yeah, absolutely, I mean, I think if you're talking about the short list of greatest players of all time, Bill Russell's name always features. And so while it's been cool diving in on, you know, the Mikans, mm. the Koozies, the Bob Pettits, it's actually, it's a whole different ball game when you go to research a player like this and start to talk about their career. So very excited to get into it. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Bill Russell, the player, Sam? Yep. So I'm going to give you guys a bit of an executive summary. Um, and look, I'm going to start with the individual things because they are slightly less impressive than what he did on his team, but nonetheless still crazy. So he's going to finish second time in reba- second all time in rebounds, second all time in minutes per game, which is pretty crazy when he only played 13 seasons. 18th all time in triple doubles. He's going to finish with five MVPs, which ties him with Michael Jordan mm. and puts him one behind Kareem. But then when you look at his stat line, it's not the craziest stat line for me. So he's he's going to average 15.3 points, 22.4 re- rebounds, 4.3 assists, shooting 44% from the field and 56% from the line. Mm. So that's Bill Russell's averages across the seasons. Look, and when you adjust for things like pace and you put that in terms of per 36, it's only 10.2, 15.3 and 2.9. Which are great numbers, but that you, you don't look at them and think all-time player. Mm. And that's because those numbers don't sort of capture his key contribution, which was on the defensive end. During the time he played, blocks were not recorded, but based on sort of estimates around watching the games that he that are live, you know, it's estimated he averages around 8.1 blocks per game for his career, which... Yeah, it's just outrageous. Yeah, when you look at blocks per game today... It's just unheard of. He's going to have an estimated 18 quadruple doubles across his career. Uh, there's only ever been five of those since blocks and steals were recorded in 1973. And then probably the one stat that does capture what he did on the defensive end is defensive win shares, which essentially measure how many wins a player is going to add to his team based on his contributions on the defensive end. And Russell was number one. He's about 60 winch, a defensive winch. He's ahead of number two, Tim Duncan. And Damn. it's a record that's never going to be broken. Jeez. Okay. So a very interesting statistical profile there. I think for a lot of people who are listening, who don't, who know the name Bill Russell, but don't know so much about the particulars of his career, I guess that's a real interesting thing to come across is he doesn't have the traditional standout stats yeah. that you'd expect. So Yeah. it's he His offensive game is really lacking, but... What he does, he's he's probably the best defensive player of all time. Mm. And when you it's when you look at all those the top ten players, he's sort of the only guy 
sorry, temp, top 10 players of all time. He's probably the only guy in there that, you know, he can't give you isolation scoring. Mm. He's not going to give you 20 points a game, but he's still more valuable well, equally valuable or n- more valuable than a lot of those guys. And we'll get into a bit of that later. Yeah. So that's team. him as an individual. Yeah. What about the team, Sam? Team. Okay. Now this is where it just gets ridiculous. So he's going to play with the Boston Celtics from the years 1956 to 1969. So right sort of through the late fifties and through the sixties, those 13 seasons, he's going to win 11 championships, including eight titles in a row. That is, that's just nuts. Like you just could not fathom that happening in this day and age, could you? No, just to not, how do you not slip up more often? Um, mm. We're going to talk about this a bit more in the episode about how they did this. How were they able to be so consistently great? But yeah, when you look at the all-time rings leaders, it's Russell with 11. And then it's just, it's literally his teammates as you go down the list. Right. Who won rings with him. The likes of Sam Jones, um, I think Tommy Heisen, they're all sort of the top four or five. And then who do you think, Sadi, is the first name that pops up that's not a Celtic? As, a, as just a player? Just a player. Oh. I'm trying to think. So Michael won six, Kareem won six. Might have to be a role player? I don't actually know. Who would it be? Robert Ori. The journeyman oh. Robert Ori. He won seven. Yeah. Oh, because he'd been three times with the Lakers, twice with the Rockets. Yeah. And then, and then the, twice with the Spurs. Yeah. Correct. Ah. Correct. Old Robert Ori. But back to back to Bill Russell. Clutch performer. So he's going to go 14 from 16 in series deciding games across his career, which includes a 10 from 10 record in game sevens. Um, five of which were in the finals. He's without a doubt the game's greatest winner. He's probably the greatest winner in American professional sports. And he's going to sort of achieve all this despite what he's going to endure in terms of racism being the game's first African-American superstar. Mm. Well, I have to say, Sam, what I'm really interested in is, because I know you've done a lot of the work around his career for this podcast. Yeah. What I'm really interested in is, obviously he's won a lot, but then you've shown me his individual stats aren't, you know, the biggest and best. So I'm really wanting to see sort of how do his teammates play into this? What is his role in leading the team to all of these chips? Yeah. Or is it more of a team effort? So that'd be really interesting. But yeah, sort of piggybacking on what you just said. Yeah, Russell played in a very, very tough time for African-American athletes and African-Americans in general. So he debuted in the NBA in the early 50s. Um, a time when segregation was still rife across America, in particular in the South. And, you know, he'd play games in opposing crowds who'd yell all sorts of racist things to them. They'd go to cities to play and be segregated and they couldn't eat in the restaurants with the rest of their teammates. And it was a very tough time. And it's really interesting because despite all that Russell did on the court, despite all the championships, despite all the individual accolades, um, his legacy does extend far beyond basketball. Mm. You know, Russell was, despite all those challenges around his race, he was a staunch civil rights activist who wouldn't let him, wouldn't let it get him down. He wouldn't let anyone beat him in that way. And he would stand up for what was right, just yeah. no matter how difficult it was. And that legacy lives on till today. 
both in terms of the enduring changes that came about in that civil rights era, but also when we look at the players today, we look at, you know, the activist players around sort of Black Lives Matters and the shootings of young African-Americans by the police in the States and their ability to use their voice and their platform to create change. A lot of that came from Bill Russell and the African-American players at the time. And in many ways, some would argue, despite all the basketball, that's his most important legacy. Yeah, and it's really important we do remember him in this way because um, he he's come out and said that he's always been more than a basketball player. Mm. He's not he's not a professional athlete. He's just a man who happened to be good at basketball. Um, and without a doubt, those contributions off the court are definitely they're sort of a lot bigger than basketball for sure and if i can say just just one thing before we wrap up this executive summary and get into the episode proper is that a lot of we, there, there will be a bit of discussion on race and civil rights throughout this episode it's sort of unavoidable you know this is our first african-american player we've covered in the series mm. and their experiences at the time bill russell's experiences at the time shape a lot of his career and so just know that the things we're saying are based on our own research and learning but that being said, if we get anything wrong, um, that's not deliberate. Um, and we're keen to sort of learn and engage further if people have any feedback on the discussion. Cool. Let's yeah. jump in. Let's jump on in. It's a 5-5 game. West again blocked by Russell. Three seconds to go in this first quarter of play. There was Russell blocking the shot by West. Russell has it back again. They try to avoid Russell, not drive down the middle if they can help it. William Felton Russell, or better known to the rest of the world now, Bill Russell, was born on 12 February 1934 in West Monroe, Louisiana. Those of you who listen to the Bob Pettit episode will recognise that this is our second player in a row who was born and raised in Louisiana, but it's pretty safe to say that the two players had very different upbringings. Bob Pettit being the son, the white son of a police chief, yeah. Um, and Bill Russell being a young African-American male growing up in a deeply segregated South. So very, very different experiences. Bill Russell and his family actually left Louisiana and moved to Oakland in the San Francisco area at the age of nine. And I think that's pretty much where he tends to identify from. There's a bit of a story, isn't there, Sam, about sort of why they left Louisiana? Yeah, so there's there's um there's a few sort of mixed mixed stories on exactly why but what we do know is um russell's father bill russell's father charlie russell he wasn't sort of a man to i guess sit around and be quiet and not speak out against things that weren't right and for that reason the i think the clan was not too happy with charlie his relatives didn't think he was going to make it past 30 so they sort of made the decision that it would be best if they moved moved to california yeah keeping in mind that california at this time was maybe more of a liberal place but less segregated but less openly racist but that being said moving to oakland it's not that they escaped racism at all so at the time um oakland was quite an industrial area um had a huge war industry um as well as lots of car factories you gotta imagine so they moved there in 1943 when bill russell was nine so the war industry was pumping there was lots of jobs and everything um and there's a thing called the great migration as thousands of african-americans from the southern states moved out west 
But in addition, there were a whole bunch of white shipyard workers who moved to Oakland from the South who brought in a whole bunch of the racist attitudes at the same time. So those first few years were all right. There's lots of jobs, you know, was, yeah. um, lots of industry, and Oakland was pumping. But following the war, as those industries dried up and the jobs yeah. dried up, um, you had a second migration, which was more of an exodus, as a lot of the city's more affluent white population left. You had about 100,000 white property owners wow. flee. Where did they go to? I think more affluent areas. So yeah. if you're thinking Oakland, they would have gone across the bay to San to Fran. To San Fran, yeah, yeah, of course. And suddenly poverty and racism became a real part of the Ross's life again. So in the you know late 1940s, the Oakland Police Department started recruiting openly racist police officers from the South, leading to increased racial tension. Around the same time, Bill Russell's mum passed away when he was 12, and that affected him a lot as well. Um, what a tough age to sort of to lose that mother figure. Exactly. Um, and he was very close to his mum, and by all accounts, this made him quite a shy and withdrawn yep. kid. As Sam's already covered, his dad was quite a principled man yep. um, who, you know, sort of stood his ground. And so while he was working some pretty menial jobs, which was all that was sort of available to him at the time... He kept his stoicism, he kept his pride, and he passed this down to Bill Russell. And I actually, I did hear a story around when when Russell's mother passed away, all her sort of sisters and cousins all said to Charlie, okay, well, they were trying to work out who was going to take Bill in. Mm. And Charlie said, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm his father. Yeah. I'm going to look after, I'm going to look after him. And they, they said, a man can't look after a kid. And he said, well, I promised my wife I was going to try. Damn. Yeah, oh god, that's actually just tough it's to very, contemplate. Very, eh? Yeah, very tough. Um, but yeah, so his um, his father had a line which he passed down to him. Which I think the reason we're sort of covering this is because a lot of this sort of formative experience will sort of inform the player and the man he was later. And this, to me, really is the key. Um, his father passed this line down to him, which is a man has to draw a line inside himself that he won't allow any other man to cross. And Bill Russell very much took that to heart and throughout his career and throughout his life, he sort of kept to that. So this really important sort of story and anecdote, I guess, for everything we're going to talk about later. Um, And so his father and his family sort of raised him to stand up to injustice and fight for himself, which, yeah, that sort of explains him to a T. At the same time that all of this was going on, (laughs) more importantly to Bill Russell, the basketball player, he first started playing basketball in Oakland, which leads us to his high school career. Yeah, um, his high school career is not... It's not much talked about, and there's a reason for that. He he was not very good at high school, which is becoming a bit of a theme um, for the players we've covered so far. So Bill Russell was going to attend McClellan's High School in Oakland. Um, He was going to be sort of a big, lanky, uncoordinated player on the court who also didn't really know or understand how he fit in on the court, how he was supposed to play. This sounds a lot like me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except a bit taller. Next Bill Russell starting? Yeah, sure, <laughs> just figure it out, mate. <laughs> yeah, and he, even Russell in his autobiography, A Second Win, will just sort of describe himself as this easily forgettable, forgettable high school player. You know, there wasn't scouts out watching him he was just an average average high school player um and during his time at high school he's going to be working at a local shipyard so he can save for 
um, saved to go to the University of San Francisco. Um, one of his mother's sort of dying wishes to Charlie was that she would get, that he would get both of the kids to college. So Russell was trying to do his part to fulfill that. So his high school career is going to come to an end with... If I just jump in, so um, in case you sort of... Any listeners missed the significance of that. The key thing with that is Russell's working and saving money to go to college. Yeah. You know, he's not the level of player that's going to get a scholarship. Yeah. And neither does he think that he is. He's not, you know, he's not grinding for that scholarship. Yeah. He's actually like, I'm going to pay my own way. And I think that's really informs you about maybe how good or not good he was at high school. Yeah, definitely. Like... In his mind, there was no way, like, he, he was going to go to university. And also, I, I think if he doesn't get a scholarship, does he continue playing basketball? Mm. I don't know. Or does he just focus on his academia? But anyway, as fate would have it, he's going to join a barnstorming team of sort of strong high school prospects from the state of California. And they're going to tour up all the way to Canada playing other, other sort of state teams. And the only reason Russell's going to make this team is essentially there were these scheduling differences in the schools around California. So some schools finished in January, some schools finished in March, etc. And that meant many of the top, the state's top players could not play, which left a spot open for Russell. And this tour is what is sort of the, mm. it's, it's the, um, what's the word? <laughs> what are you trying to say is, is it like the awakening of him yeah, as a basketball player it's the it's really the awakening of russell as a basketball player um he's gonna have a lot of time sort of in on these buses between games where he can think about the game and he's he's gonna talk about this epiphany he has on one of these bus trips where he just he sees the court he sees how the game's played he sees what he's good at and he figures out in his mind the way he needs to play basketball, which is all around blocking shots and playing defense. Mm. And that's combined with a coach that gave him a lot more freedom than what he did at McClellan's high school. Uh, and Russell's really going to un- unlock himself as a player. He's going to be starting for this team, blocking a ridiculous amount of shots. And a scout is going to witness um, one game where Russell has a 14 point career high, not, a huge career high but mm. for russell that was enough and i'm sure there was plenty of things on the defensive end that meant when russell returned home he found that he had been offered a basketball scholarship to san fran university he only got one scholarship offer across the u.s um, but it happened to be the one that he was gonna save up for anyway so russell's gonna attend the set the university of san francisco and join their team the dons at a college level yeah that is it's pretty crazy that this person has really come to define basketball and is seen as the greatest winner like there was maybe a moment where that wasn't going to happen you know yeah and it actually it sort of plays into the way he played the game was so different and ahead of his time that people just didn't see the value he added as well so Mm. there was a part where he wasn't actually that good at high school but then people sort of scouts couldn't look forward and see what he could become mm. like they can today. Um, so yeah, we're gonna he's gonna join the San Francisco Dons at a college level. Um, the years he plays there are nineteen fifty three to fifty six. And he's gonna this team is pretty average. He's gonna join and they've got a losing record. And in his first game they're gonna play against Berkeley from California. 
And he's going to be marking All-American center Bob McCain, who's one of the sort of best centers in college basketball at the time. And he's going to block the first five shots that McCain takes. And the coach is going to tell Russell, you can't play defense like that. Well, it doesn't make sense, but I guess the comparison I make is maybe, you know, like someone, some of the coaches probably didn't appreciate Steph Curry's three-point shooting as much as they should have. Exactly. I guess the key thing that he did, which the coach really didn't like, my understanding is he left his feet for blocks. Yeah. So he he brought that vertical game on the defensive end, which at the time just wasn't a thing. Like, people remained flat-footed. They had their arms up. Yeah. But you weren't leaping for blocks because, I mean, my understanding is maybe you leap for a block and a player just went around you, right? Like, you were sort of leaving yeah. your position. I will speak as a very unathletic basketball player. For me, when I'm playing defense... I, I barely leave my feet because if I do, it takes me so long to sort of move again when I get down. It's just, I just stand there with my hands up. But the thing is, these. <laughs> what? It worked on you thanks, before. Thanks for being so open, Sam. No, that's all I do. Whereas, whereas coaches at the time, that's sort of, that's what they passed on. If you're yeah. under the rim, you stand there, hands up straight. They hadn't seen someone like Russell who had that second jump, who had that ability to jump, try mm. block a shot, and then move again and get back in the defensive play. For sure. Yeah, you got that out of your system? Yeah, that was great. Bet you 5-1, buddy. <laughs> um, okay, so the, t- yeah, the team's going to, on the defensive end, is going to just really step it up a level with Russell. So they're going to give up 10 less points per game, which is huge at the college level where teams are sort of only scoring 60 to 70 points. That's really the Russell impact. Yeah. And that's that's just his first season. His last two seasons are where it gets really crazy. Mm. They're only going to lose one game. Russell's going to top score for the team, so he's, he's finding himself a bit on the offensive end. Are they going to win two NCAA championships? which includes a 55-game win streak. And, look, this is one of the most storied sort of... He's, Russell's sort of turned this fairly average NCA team into one of the most storied and greatest teams mm. of all time. And I think it sort of sets the scene for what's about to happen in the NBA. Absolutely. I mean, he comes in, he plays completely weirdly for most people, and he just turns them around defensively. A key difference to what he's going to do in the, to the, in the NBA, though, is he's also a great scorer at the college level. Yeah. You've got to imagine at the college level, I guess the athletic, the general athleticism is a little bit lower, and so Russell, who was also like an Olympic-level was it a high jumper? High jumper. Yeah. His athleticism is, you know, off the charts and he's still able to be quite an effective scorer. So he ends up averaging over 20 points and over 20 rebounds in his junior yeah. year in college. They win 28 out of 29. Like, it's just dominance, just pure dominance from this very unheralded team, which is, yeah, that is exactly what he does when he comes to the NBA. Yeah. So he's going to enter the league and... 1956 to 57 and we know the impact he can have from college he is a winner so let's jump into the season by season right the season by season now for bill russell we've had to do things a bit differently for most players we focus in on the seasons they win a title really cover those in depth but if we did that for russell we'd probably be here for about five or six hours 
Trust me, we this is our second recorder. We we tried. <laughs> it, it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite tedious. Um, so we're gonna break this break his career off into sort of three key chapters and then um cover a few key seasons in each of those chapters. Yeah. Now the first chapter at th- at first I thought it would sort of be around how he built this dynasty, how this team was built. But in reality they won from the start. Mm. So what this chapter really is about is how Bill Russell and the Celtics broke basketball from the season that he joined. And that's both Bill Russell individually on the defensive end and then um, some of the things the Celtics were doing as a team that Sadi will cover later on. And during this during this time period, Russell's going to have four sort of key teammates. He's going to have Bob Cousy, of course, the elite playmaker and scorer who we've covered. We're going to have Tommy Heisen, who's going to be drafted in the same draft as Russell. He's a power forward who's um, an elite scorer, got a great jump shot, and he's probably going to top score for this team over this period. Um, some of you might know Tommy Heisen as the former Celtics play-by-play commentator oh, who yeah. passed away, I think, end of last year or yeah, earlier correct. this year. Yeah, yeah So um, he's he's a real Celtics legend. Real legend, yeah, yeah. for sure. Hey, did he coach at some point or no? I think he might have in the 70s, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the last two players making up the starting lineup is we've got the shooter, Bill Sharman, and then Frank Ramsey. Where does, where does Sam Jones fit into the, all of that? He's drafted around, I think, around 1960. So okay. he's going to play a part sort of later on in Russell's career gotcha. through the middle and later periods. But before we can get into the into the actual play we've got to talk about bill russell's draft story because it wasn't as clear cut as the celtics mm. just picking bill russell so red went into this draft knowing he wanted bill russell wait what year was the draft 1956 okay cool. so it's a 1956 nba draft so nba had been around for about seven years at this point yeah correct yeah. correct yeah so i think so at the time that they just had the first season with MVP, which was won by Bob Pettit. Yes, that's right. And but but Red didn't have a sort of pick that would be able to get Russell, so he is going to trade Clough Hagen and Ed McCauley. It's a trade we covered last episode to St. Louis, the St. Louis Hawks, who of course have Bob Pettit. The reason, obviously, in retrospect, not the greatest trade for the Hawks, losing one of the greatest players of all time. Mm. But, it, but the rumours around why they made this trade, one reason is obviously the price of Bill Russell. He he was going to come to the league on a $10,000 salary, quite expensive at the time. Yeah. And the other sort of rumour is Ben Kerner. Ben Kerner didn't think that St. Louis, being a racist southern sort of NBA franchise, was not ready for an African-American to be the superstar of their team, which Oof. is it's good they didn't draft him because Russell said he would have if he if St. Louis drafted him he would have just uh, dropped out of the NBA wow okay yeah so then so that 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 meant that the Celtics now had the number three pick which because they also had the territorial pick essentially meant they had the number two pick in the draft gotcha but then there was still the Rochester Royals with the number one pick and there's this there's this very controversial story that Red Auerbach tells that no one else has confirmed. And it involves 
the ice capades. <laughs> Who are the ice capades? So the ice capades were the sort of traveling, dancing, figure skating routine <laughs> that was very big in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And essentially, as Red tells the story, he is going to, I think the ice capades are in Boston and he's going to trade several ice capades performances to Walter Brown, the owner of the Rochester Royals, with the agreement that they would not take Bill Russell with the with their pick. Wow. I see you've just got them up on Wikipedia. Yeah, that's bizarre. Yeah. Now, again, no one's confirmed this, but let's just believe this story. I think it's too brilliant. We've just got to believe it. So the Rochester Royals are going to take someone else as their pick, and Bill Russell was going to end up on the Celtics. That's actually incredible. I mean, looking at the ice capades here, I admit I would take that trade. Like they're looking quite good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a Bill Russell but, played for thirteen years. The ice capades were in business. For years, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> anyway, that's a really interesting draft story, actually. Yeah. Um, again, just fate as fate would have it, he ends up on the Celtics. People really did some weird shit in basketball at that time, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, <laughs> it was sort of like the wild... I mean, it was the Wild West years. There wasn't sort of these huge regulations or rules, and I think owners sort of just did whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah. But he's going to join the Celtics. And look, Red... Red, um, he desperately wanted him in the draft, but he's also going to say to Bill Russell, he's going to say, look, you're the best player in the league. Yeah. But I've never seen anything like you play your game and I will learn as we go how to coach you um, which is huge Red sort of this very experienced coach still didn't know how Russell was going to fit into this team mm. yeah absolutely it's really interesting um, so this is a side thought but we never give our props enough to the early coaches who really shaped the game now. yeah like you think about like coaches these days you get a player like Russell you have you have a, a lot bl- to draw you have a blueprint. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas here he was having to design a defense to fit around this whole new way of playing. Yeah. But then also an offense around this hyper athletic player who, as we've sort of briefly covered, is pretty inefficient and not a great yeah, shooter. But he's sure. also your centerpiece. Interesting. Yeah, and I mean when you look at centers back then, they were supposed to be your offensive centerpiece, as we covered in one of the early episodes, as sort of the pivot. Mm. and the key cog in the offense yeah so how does how do they make it work and just win straight away as soon as russell come in so essentially a lot of it comes down to russell he um he is an incredibly analytical basketball mind and he will sort of tell stories of when they were in training camp he's just going to sit there and analyze his team and he's going to break down and work out how he fits into the team right how he needs to play to sort of maximize their chance of winning and that's sort of the maturity for a rookie at that mm. age to be doing that um yeah absolutely. is huge and it also and also look the the celtics team um they hadn't won a championship and what bill russell added is what they were lacking they were lacking defense and rebounding they had great guards they had great scorers but they're constantly you know, when Russell joins, are the sixth best team defensively. Mm. And in that first season, um, they're going to be the, the best team defensively, which, again, it's just the Russell effect. Yeah. So, yeah, they're going to 
Oh, and just to put oh, that in yeah, context, to be the sixth best team defensively sorry, yeah. doesn't really mean the third, third to last. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> only eight teams. <laughs> yeah, not good. Yeah. Um. Now, Sadi, Russell, obviously an incredible shot blocker. Mm. What other things did he sort of do to make himself that elite level defender? Uh, th- there's a range of things, right? Because I think the shot blocking is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. The key to Russell mainly was like he was an extremely high IQ player so he wasn't just chasing blocks for the sake of chasing blocks he he sort of played defense quite holistically and in a very high IQ manner so a couple of different things so say even just we'll start with blocks what he used to do was he wouldn't you know he wouldn't just chase blocks throughout the game he'd use them strategically so he knew that if he could you know, alter people's shots, block people's shots early, put that pressure on them at the start while he's full of energy and they're getting settled into their game, then what that could do is alter the way they played for the rest of the game. So it was, oh. it was all a big mind game for him. So I blocked this player's shot several times in a row to start the game. Yeah. Next time they, you know, tried to take it to the rim, next time I matched up against them, they're imagining the block before it even comes. Yeah. The ghost of me is hanging there. And that changes their decision-making, makes them more hesitant. And anyone who's sort of, I guess, most people listening have probably played sport before, the minute you start to second-guess yourself on the court is the minute that it becomes easier for the opponent to slow you down and stop you and know what you're doing. Because yeah. your decision-making just not snappy, it's not clear. And so he used his blocks not just to sort of stop the shot, but strategically psychologically yeah, yeah psychologically and another thing he was great at as well and if you ever sort of li- watch um, NBA games and they've got older announcers on every time you see someone block a shot then catch the ball yeah and then make a pass Russell was known for them they always called them Russell blocks because he knew that there's no point blocking a shot if you're going to give it back to the yeah, other team block it out, out of bounds yeah. yeah for sure you needed to block it and regain position and then start your offense and so he was known for that too probably the the greatest thing about Russell defensively was his very low fouling rate yeah um, something that's you know Fouling is a really interesting one, how you use fouls in basketball, I think, especially defensively. But what it just meant was that, you know, you could trust him to go out there and play 48 minutes, play very physical defense, block shots, but he wouldn't give away free points. Yeah. And that that meant that the team's fouling rate was really low, and that meant that every sort of point had to be earned. Um, Yeah, and just to put that fouling rate in context, um, when, when teams were playing in this era... The fouling rate was around 30 or 40% higher than what it is today. So players are getting to the line a lot easier. And this is despite the field goal percentage being about 10% lower mm. and the free throw percentage being similar to today's league. So essentially what was happening is teams across the league, all their players were bailing out these dudes who were not going to make the shot most of the time, giving them easy free throws. And Russell was the one that came in and did not foul, did not give them the easy easy bucket. And, of course, that's going to mean they're going to have to make a really tough sort of shot over the 6'10", Bill Russell. Absolutely. If I can throw a stat in there to sort of put his fouling into context. So in his 13-year career, there were only four seasons where he had three or more personal fouls wow. per game, which you got to imagine for the centre and a time when 
everything lived at the rim. Yeah. It's very low. Yeah. And that was in his first season. So he's he got he yeah. three fouls per game in his first season. Then for the next nine seasons, it's all below three. And then in his last three seasons, he starts to slow down. He's back up to 3.2, 3.13. So. Wow. In his prime, you know, you could trust him to give away less than three fouls a game on average. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible. And by estimates, average eight blocks a game. <laughs> like, yeah. Ridiculous. So. Um, oh, and then just a final yep. element um, on his defending. And this is a thing that's not talked about so much as a key oh some old school people still talk about as a key part of defense is his defensive rebounding yeah was incredible yeah for sure um and just to put this in context now in the modern nba we talk a lot about team rebounds and actually team rebounding matters most um, because it's not about how many rebounds an individual gets yeah it's about your team securing the rebound but my understanding is especially back in say the 50s and 60s when it was big men living under the rim, tussling under the rim, and there were a lot more yeah. missed shots, a lot more missed shots from close range, so the yeah. rebounds came closer. The ability of your big man to outcompete the other big man and secure that rebound yeah. was really important. So, you know, Bill Russell was a prolific rebounder, averaged about 22 rebounds per game for his career, and it was a constant battle underneath the rim for him every single night to secure that rebound and regain possession for his team. And that's really that's a really important but underrated aspect of that defense. Yeah, that rebounding's interesting. We've talked about this a bit. Obviously, because there's more shots back then, the rebounding numbers are going to be higher. But then also as a center, like you said, there's no team rebounding, so that responsibility is on you and you alone to get those rebounds. Yeah, and you got to think about it as well. Like shots back then were taken from as close in as possible each time, and so with the three point revolution you have a lot more longer rebounds. Yeah. Whereas back in those days, the rebounds were always close to the rim. Yeah. You know? And so it was, yeah, it was really important to have someone big enough and strong enough to get those um, and, re, you know, reinitiate the offense to your team. And he did that very well. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so we we have reached the finals now. We're not going to cover this finals in too much depth, but the Celtics... There's the finals in his first season. Finals in his rookie season. They're yeah. against the Hawks. We've, we've covered this this finals twice already. Yeah. And the Koozie and the Peter episodes. Um, Under, underrated, what's the name? Rivalry. Yeah. I think we talked about this. Very yeah, underrated have. rivalry. So the, the, the Hawks are, for those first five seasons, they're the key rivals of the Celtics. And let's just also think, you know, they're, well, we we won't spoil it, but they are one of the teams that are going to do, actually do fairly well against the Celtics mm. relative, relative to the other teams. And they're going to, so they're going to meet in the finals. It's going to go to seven games. And Russ is going to average 14.7 and 19.6 for the series, including 19 and 32 in game seven. Oof. He's a big performer in game sevens. And what, so what I sort of find really interesting about this rivalry between the Hawks and the Celtics across these first five years is the really contrasting sort of play style that we see for the two teams. Mm. Now, the Celtics are going to win this series in seven games. Next year, the Hawks are actually going to beat beat a Celtics team who Russell who's sort of injured during it. So there's questions on whether they still would have won. But we've sort of got a really 
extremely fast-paced team, Sadi, versus a very slow, methodical team. Mm. Can you tell us which one is which? Absolutely. So the very fast-paced team is actually the Celtics. Yeah. And the slow-paced team is that St. Louis Hawks yeah, team. for sure. Because what you have is you have a St. Louis Hawks team centered around Bob Pettit, yeah. who played this incredible half-court offense, which is, you know, I think very efficient, and they score a lot of points. Yeah. Um, and Bob Pettit is a key part of that because he is a shot maker. Yeah. He's a hard shot taker, and he's a hard shot maker. And you can base an off- a good half-court offense around that. Whereas... On the Celtics side, you know, Bill Russell isn't a hard shot taker. His yeah. especially his early seasons, he was very limited and he was he would dunk every time he could because that was actually pretty much the he, only way. He doesn't he doesn't have that touch close to the rim. He know? doesn't at all, yeah. And then you've got you have Bob Cousy, but Bob Cousy's a small and relatively inefficient guard, yeah. as I think we've covered before. And so the way they played was they played fast because they knew that if they were gonna score their points, they're gonna have to outrun their opponents they're gonna to have to maximize you know play on bill russell's ability to block and retain possession or regain possession off a defensive rebound get out and run and use his speed and athleticism to yeah. get them easy shots um, yeah. and use bob Cousy's, you know incredible passing on the fast yeah. break and it's very stylistic yeah. and different and it's very interesting as well when you look at you know, points per game, the Celtics are like well and truly up there. But then when you look at offensive rating and defensive rating, the Celtics are consistently going to be near the bottom, at, but their defense is going to be enough to carry them. And that's something we don't normally associate with sort of a fast break team. Hmm. Because we sort of associate, you know, those fast break run and gun teams as the offensive. Yes, sort of, we do. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't often think of them as the methodical and the half-court defense yeah. type team. Um, obviously, they're going to generate, like, if, you, if you've if you got a team that relies on fast breaks, you're generating steals. Yeah, for sure. Um, you're turning the ball over. But yeah, well, you don't often associate that, you're right, with a high-functioning defense. Yeah. Um, whereas the slower-paced teams are the ones that you think would have the... Yeah, would have the better defense, but potentially the worst offense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I think with, I think the reason why the Celtics sort of lag behind on offense is a big part of that is not having that center, the center. Sorry, the I guess the pivot, mm. um, the big man who's going to score efficiently in Russell. He he's not someone like Mikan who's back to the basket, going to give you easy buckets. But the other thing is this team their sort of the identity is around defense so you know the fast break as much of it is is about scoring it's also about just getting the ball down the court mm. running uh sort of making the other team run and they're not necessarily going to look for the most efficient shot um oh they chucked up some they prayers. chucked up some prayers but this is where when you watch the tape you can really see Bill Russell's athleticism on show. Like we said, he's a he was an Olympic level high yeah, jumper. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing that often gets, you know, even we're doing it now, is when you face a really athletic team, yeah. Like even if you know, even if they weren't efficient, if you face an athletic team that was blocking your shots, making steals, and just running you off the floor, it was tough. And out rebounding you. Yeah, exactly. The field goal percentage at that point doesn't matter so much. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's what they did. They were relentless, and you just honestly watch Russell just fucking 
sprinting up oh the court. He's just so much bigger and faster. Yeah. <laughs> it looks Gumby because of the black and white and because of like yeah. how distinctly different he looks compared to everyone else. But yeah, it, it worked for them because all they needed to do was slow the other team down on defense. Yeah. And yeah, just take as many Score shots as possible. Score enough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And this, so in, in Russell's second season, he's going to win his first MVP, which is, so, so the league now is, has identified him as the sort of most valuable player for the Celtics in that season. The interesting thing is he's not going to win, he's not going to make all NBA first team this season. There's two completely different groups voting mm. for all NBA and MVP. The MVPs voted for by the players all NBA at the time was voted for by the media. So the media doesn't necessarily see, like they're going to vote in Dolph Shays as the all NBA center. They don't see that value that Russell adds on the court defensively. When, whereas the players who have to go through that psychological warfare of having their shots consistently blocked, Mm. know how valuable Russell is. Absolutely. Just put in context, Dolph Shays, we didn't do an episode about him. But sort of probably behind Kuzi and Pettit yeah. and Mikan, sort of like that next best next type tier, of player in the fifties. Yeah, yeah, like a consistent All NBA first team level centre who scored, played for the Syracuse Nationals. So a very good player in his own right. But yeah, the, I mean, there's always a difference in how players and media evaluate value. Yeah, and it's really interesting here. Yeah, it's the players understand we don't want to go on the court against Bill Russell because yeah. he changes the game. He changes how we play, yeah. you know, in terms of the game plan, the scouting report, you know, whereas maybe the media, especially because the media at that time, they weren't watching every single game. Not every game was nationally televised. It was what games they could see, yeah, right? For you had, sure. You had local reporters who saw their teams a lot and then yeah. saw the visiting player. So they'd see Dolph Shays come in and score a lot of points. Yeah and win games for his team in that way and so I think there's a whole different way of like perceiving it at that time yeah very really good point and Russell's the sort of guy that you've got to understand uh, you've got to watch a lot I'd say to see mm. that value when he's not out there putting up 30 40 points yeah but so yeah in the 57 58 58 59 seasons Russell's gonna Russell and the Celtics are gonna go one from two they're gonna lose a rare finals to the St. Louis Hawks and then the next season, they're going to beat a Lakers team in the finals. They're going to sweep them. The team's going to be led by Elgin Baylor. And Russell's going to be two from three in terms of championships with one MVP. Which brings us to the final two seasons of this breaking basketball chapter. And in 59-60, which is Russell's fourth season, one of the greatest NBA rivalries is going to be born with Wilt Chamberlain joining the league on the San Francisco Warriors. That's what I'm saying. I actually, um, until we did this, didn't realise how uh, much of a career Bill Russell had before Wilt Chamberlain came yeah. in. So he's got two championships already. He's a lot younger. Uh, sorry, a lot older, clearly. Yeah, exactly. So, like, obviously Russell plays the next 10 years and Wilt plays a few years after. Yeah. But you only ever hear about those two careers talked in relation to each yeah, other. Yeah, you kind of think that they sort of drafted the same year. Exactly. For sure, yeah. yeah. And, but look, Wilt's going to come into the league and he's, 
an absolute beast in his first season Russell's going to finish second in MVP voting well as a rookie is going to win MVP one of two rookies ever to do that is the other where's Unsel- where's Unseld with Very the bullets nice. yeah and like we're doing Wilt next episode so we, we won't go too in depth with him but essentially he's um, oh I mean it might be a few months before the next episode yeah probably, so probably right. maybe half a year <laughs> but yeah, Wilt is essentially a sort of juxtaposition of Russell He's an elite scorer. He's going to value individual stats really highly. Not very well liked by his teammates. Um, and the two are going to meet up for the first time in this Eastern Conference Finals. Well, as a rookie, Will takes his team to the yep. Eastern Conference Finals. Okay. Against the Celtics team, who at this point is, um, without a doubt, the best team in the league. And yep. to Will's credit, they're going to take. I think they're going to take them to six games. But across the series, um, Russell sort of does show that, you know, he's he's a perfect counter to Wilt. He's got that defense, the defense to sort of bring Wilt scoring down a bit. Mm. And then they are going to go again to the finals against the Hawks. So credit to this Hawks team. Again, a seven-game series. Something you talked about, Sadi, is Russell's lack of fouling. Mm. Russ is going to just commit 12 fouls in this finals. The Hawks' free throw rate is going to drop from 38% to 25%, which is huge considering, you know, the reliance they have on Pettit and Hagen getting to the line. Yeah, well, I mean, like we covered that last episode, they're very physical. Pettit in particular, he was a heck of a free yeah. throw shooter and would draw fouls. Like, draw fouls like crazy, yeah, yeah. for sure. Another Game 7 win, Russ, Russ is going to put up 22 and 37 <laughs> Uh, just, 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 just outrageous rebounding. Outrageous rebounding. Uh, just game seven hustle. Against Pettit as well, who was a very good rebounder yep. in his own right. And they might have had Lover dead at that point as well. Yeah. And Hagen was a good rebounder. And then the final season of this sort of first chapter is where they really hit dynasty mode. Um, Russ is going to earn his second MVP. This is 60 to 61. Russ's five, uh, fifth season. They're going to win their fourth ring where they're just going to sort of destroy the Hawks in the finals in five games. And that brings us on to the next chapter. Damn. So, okay, so just to recap, first five seasons, yeah, they win four championships. Yeah. Russell has two MVPs. Yeah. They've just won three straight championships. Three straight, correct. And they've smashed their old rivals in five. Yeah, they've dismantled the Hawks and they're not going to see the Hawks again in the finals. Right. And in this time, Russell's managed to completely rework what it means to play good defense. He comes yeah. into a league which is, you know, isn't known for its verticality and athleticism and he changes the way defense is played. He changes the way players are valued. Yeah. Um, okay, that's, that's yeah. not a bad start. It's a very good start to a career. All right, so if that's the first five seasons, what's this next era called, Sam? Uh, I've got this era down as maintaining basketball perfection. Uh, 61 to 66. <laughs> it's a bit cheese, isn't it? Mate, <laughs> I spent hours coming up with this name. Um, what do you What do you think we call it, Sadi? Have you got any ideas? No, I like it. It suits the romanticism of the period, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's a beautiful period. Um, and what this is about is, look, you've got this team consistently like the best team in the league but how do they win season by season how do they not sort of fall apart as we see with other sort of dynasties Mm. eventually something something breaks but with this team it just doesn't they just win year on year and it's not just about sort of maintaining 
this level of basketball excellence um it's about improve like sort of consistently improving as well because the league's getting better you know during these time during this time period the league is stacked you've got wilt chamberlain Mm. you've got um obviously the lakers elgin baylor and jerry west yeah and then you've also got oscar robinson now joining the league on the royals yeah absolutely um so there's a lot of hot competition there absolutely i think the the way i'd put it into context is like so say if we think about the great dynasties in the past 30 40 years yeah the warriors lasted about five years yeah and then now they've pretty much fallen apart players leave like kd injuries um the miami heat lasted about four years of four straight finals and they were talking about how exhausted they were you had say the three-peat lakers in the early 2000s by the time they hit their fifth year they're falling apart you have the Bulls needed a break in the middle and they yeah. needed a retool in the 90s. Probably the only team that I'd say since the um, since the start of the 90s that have had that consistent level of excellence would be the San Antonio Spurs. But there they had five championships in about, what, 16, 17? Yeah. Oh no, five championships in about 20 seasons, Yeah, let's say, when you include the David Robinson era. Compared to here, the Celtics, 11 championships in 13 seasons. Yeah. And you're right, actually, Sam. Sorry, just to keep going. The league is getting better at this time. Like, yeah. You're moving on from a 50s era where, you know, the NBA was in its infancy to a 60s era of basketball where you had a lot more athleticism entering the league. Mm. You know, Russell was no longer the solely athletic person. Actually, he was probably no longer one of the most athletic people. You had like someone like Algin who could fly, right? Who was known for bringing the game vertical. But you also had other players like, say, like a Nate Thormand who was with the um, Warriors for a while, like who's, you know, not even remembered now, but was known as like a 20-point-per-game scorer and a 20-rebound-per-game type player. Like there was a lot... There was, it was The league was starting to get better and better. And yeah, they just actually... The Celtics got better and better too. So how did they do it? Yeah, um, no, that, I think that's really, really well done. How com- comparing it to all those modern teams and just sort of how they fall apart. And we're gonna we'll get into that a bit later around how the Celtics team sort of stays together. Um, and Russell was a key part of that. But we're gonna jump straight into the sixty one to sixty two season because okay. this is an all time all right crazy season. So just to set the scene, we've got Wilt Chamberlain in the league in his third season, averaging 50 points a game. Okay. Something we will never see again, I doubt. Um, we've got Oscar Robertson in his second season. Um, he's averaging a triple-double, so 30.8, 12.5, and 11.4. We've got the Lakers. We've got West um, and Baylor. West is averaging about 30 a night. Baylor's averaging 38 and 18. And that was while he was in the army, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. And despite this, the Celtics will have sort of one of the all-time great seasons. They're going to go 60 and 20. Russell averaging... 16.9 points and 23.9 yep, rebounds. Yeah, found it there. He's just averaging that. He's going to win MVP over Will, who's averaging 50 and 27. And, of course, Oscar and the others. Again, the value that the players see that they're going to give Russell the MVP trophy averaging 16 and 23 over a guy averaging 50 a game in Wilt. It just speaks volumes on how the players at the time viewed Russell and his impact. Mm. 
maybe a little bit about how they viewed Wilt and his impact as well too though but yeah, we can get into we that can later. get into that later yeah uh, and also obviously a big part of that is that the Celtics had the best record in the league yeah. um 60 and 20 and they're gonna go to the final uh sorry to the Eastern Conference Finals and they're gonna have a very tough road to this championship firstly they've got to go through Wilt and this um Philadelphia Warriors team and you know what a matchup Wilt versus Russell Russell's going to keep him to 33 and 27 <laughs> I mean I say keep him to 33 and 27 those are still huge numbers but when this Warriors team has played on played with Wilt all year and then suddenly he loses he's not scoring that 17 extra points to get to 50 they're not going to be able to find that elsewhere no so the Russ effect there is huge absolutely I mean that's a dramatic decrease in his scoring yeah i don't really know how else to put i can't even think of a comparable top player losing 17 points per game when they get into the playoffs even looking at it as like a percentage like losing one third of their points so i yeah. guess that'd be like a 30 point score dropping to 20 mm. you don't really see it and in game seven we've got um russ averaging 16 16 per game this this year and then we've got Wilt averaging 50. And they're going to end up with fairly identical stat lines. Russ is going to have 19 and 22, and Wilt's going to have 22 and 22 in Game 7. And you already know all the uh, all the t- intangible things during that game. You know Russell would have had the better impact, and Wilt's sort of value is all tied up in the stats. So yeah. when they have similar stat lines, you know who had the better Game 7. Absolutely. This is before Wilt sort of really became the top level defender he was at the end of his career yeah, as well. For sure. Yeah. He was he was he was just a huge athletic elite scorer. I, I do have a have to give a quick shout out to Paul Arison. So the Celtics are gonna win this game seven um by two points to get to the finals. Paul Arison, who the season before was second in the league in scoring, is gonna shoot four from twenty two <sighs> in game seven. Hall of Famer not the best performance there from Wilt's teammate. No, not at all. Oh, no. my Lord. And now Russell's going to meet Baylor and West, this Lakers team, in the finals. This is the first finals where the Lakers have both ba- Baylor and West. Before I sort of go through to, to another Game 7, Baylor in this series is going to average 40.6 and 17.9 rebounds. Mm. Before his injury, this dude was just ridiculous. Yeah, Alton Baylor gets so forgotten, but he was sort of, as a <coughs> vertical playing small forward, he's sort of the OG in terms of the line of players that eventually get to a LeBron. Yeah. You know, it goes Algin, then Dr. J, yeah. and, you know, there's this very clear line. And he's the one who brought that wing player who played above the rim type prototype yeah, to the league. Sure. He could score with the best of them. I think he still has the highest scoring performance in the nba finals as a record i think is that was it like that 63 yeah point game yeah yeah you might be correct so rest in peace alden he only passed away last year mm. um but yeah an all-time great that one i can't wait to do- talk about him later on as yeah well. for sure um russell is gonna is probably gonna have his best finals performance in the series he's gonna top score and put up 23-27 with six assists. Wow. Huge numbers, especially those assists. Yeah, absolutely. Just playmaking. Uh, and then it's going to go to game seven. And this is probably one of the more forgotten games in Lakers history because they want to forget it. 
firstly, shout out to Russell. He's going to put out 30 points and 40 rebounds. Eight from 18 from the field and a 56% free throw shooter is going to go 14 to 17 from the line. Oh, and that's clutch. They needed every one of those free throws. That, um, that's ridiculous. That is clutch. But despite this, the Lakers are going to have a chance to win it at the buzzer. Frank Selby is going to have an open look at a mid-range. He's a really good shooter, but he just is going to leave it short. And it's going to go to OT where the Celtics are going to run away with it. The Celtics in this game are going to shoot only 33% from the field. Right. But they're going to win the battle on the boards 85 to 62 and win another title. So that brings us to my next question. How the hell is this team so clutch? How do they win all these game sevens? Yes. Well, I mean, that's what goes into winning a game seven, I guess, is the key question for me. Like, what does it actually take and how do you get good at that? So you can't sort of take out the luck aspect Mm. as a sort of statistical thinker you know every game there's sort of i sort of think there's a percentage chance each team's gonna win yeah and sometimes it just it just goes the way of one team yeah and like we saw in that game there frank salvi could have made that shot and the lakers could have won yeah so when a team goes 10 from 10 in game sevens some of those games is luck yeah for the Celtics. But then once we separate it, we see, uh, I think one of the interesting things is we sort of associate game seven clutch performances with elite scoring. Gotcha. But Bill Russell is going to show there's so many ways you can contribute to being clutch. You know, clutch defense, clutch rebounding, clutch hustle. And I think one of the reasons he's able to even sort of step up from the way he performs regularly is due to the sort of psychological and mental sort of strength he has in the sense that he talks about before games, the way he prepares is he sort of, he gets nervous, he vomits, but then he just sits there and gets himself into this mental rage. (laughs) He just sits there and just, but essentially gets himself fired up, but he's, he's clearly got such a, such a sort of, um, I guess the control over his like what he's thinking about mentally sure, yeah. that in the game sevens, he's, he can just sort of push himself and step up another level. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the, the other sort of things you look at as a selfish, selfish team that definitely helps. Everyone's willing to contribute to get that win. But Sam Jones as well, um, as probably bill russell's greatest teammate he's going to average 27 points per game in game sevens for russell so dang sort of a combination of luck russell's incredible mental and psychological sort of capacity to Mm. push himself above the limit and then also some really clutch teammates as well who will really help out in the points with the point scoring absolutely okay well that's a really good answer actually i guess i'm just trying to think about you know I guess we've all dealt with situations where there's like, say, a lot of pressure. Yeah. And yeah, it's that mentality that matters so much. And I guess yeah. there's probably in sport, um, not much greater pressure than a game seven in the finals. Yeah, um, for sure. So it's like, how do you keep your head? Yeah. And that's something that's in every level of sport, I guess, that just scales up. It's like, how do you go into a high leverage game? Yeah. And play your game the best you can play and not get caught up in the emotion, not overthink. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess if you've got that ability to focus yourself, yeah. 
get yourself hungry and amped up, but not too amped up because you can't be too amped up. You've got to play smart. Then that takes you a long way there. And I guess the more game sevens they played, the yeah, easier that's, it becomes. That's the other thing. There's probably is there like a sort of mental hurdle that these teams are going to face like oh the Celtics in another game seven like we don't have a chance mm. and the Celtics with the confidence we've, oh, games we've done it so many times yeah they've done it before and like yeah it's that confidence comes with having done it so many times but also knowing the edge and the hustle and the hunger required yeah um, whilst also being clear of mind brilliant okay we're now going to jump into sort of the the next three seasons I've bunched together. The next season's interesting because it's sort of Cousy's, Bob Cousy's final season, which um, he's obviously a huge part of the Celtics team and the way they play. Russ is going to win his third MVP in a row. Hmm. Any idea? There's two other players that have done this. Any any guesses? What, Russ winning two MVPs in a row? I have three in a row. There's three players that have... Larry Bird won three MVPs yeah. in a row. Um, and... Oh, I should know this. Give me one second. Um, so Larry Bird did. No one in the 90s. No one in the 2000s or the 2010s. Was it Kareem? No. Who was it? Wilt. Oh, I should have known mate, that. How, how... Th- that's frustrating. Oh, mate. Mate. But yeah, on the back of this MVP, they're going to win again, beating the Lakers in the finals in six. Uh, And I really just wanted to highlight sort of the significance of the next season where they have lost Bob Cousy. So not only is Bob Cousy sort of huge as the point guard for this team and the sort of leader on offense, but he's the captain of the team and he's also the player that the fans... Uh, I'd say obsessed with and he's probably by the fans he's probably overrated in the sense of how much he impacts his team winning yeah and you've actually got in the 63 to 64 season the first season without Koozie um, a fan's going to come up to Russell and say what are you guys going to do now that you don't have Koozie carrying you <laughs> and oh. Russell Russell responded well it will be difficult to make an adjustment Sorry, while it will be difficult, we will have to make an adjustment, but do yourself a favour and find out find out who the MVP of the league was for the past three years. Oh. Which, but, like, how is how, as a fan, how, how are you going to say that when Russ has literally... He's literally won the MVP the last three years. It's... Yeah. Uh, it's a different time. And partly... I don't want to put it down to racism, but... I think I think we've got to put a wee bit of it down to racism at least. You know, the 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 fan base was largely white and it was pretty much all white in Boston and Russell was sort of this unruly, outspoken African American. We know in the season as well, Russell's house is gonna get broken into and it's gonna be vandalized, people are gonna defecate on Russell's bed, a lot of disgusting things. And we do say see later on in Russ Russ's career well, after he retires, you know, he's he is so truly entrenched with being a Celtic, but that is completely different to what he thinks of Boston as a city. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, this season, Russell's going to really sort of prove prove that he doesn't need Koozie. They're going to have the sort of most dominant playoff run that they probably ever have and win, beat, beat the Royals with Oscar in five, then Wilt and five in the finals who's now on the philadelphia warriors and that's six titles in a row and that brings me to the next question 
how the hell does this team actually maintain this level of excellence? Like with all the changing cogs, we've just seen Bob Cousy leave. What what sort of things? How how do they do it? Do you do you have any theories you want to throw out, Sadi? Well, I'm not sure I've really got theories on a throw out, but this is like a um, it's really interesting. I think have you watched NBA Open Court? No. Oh, okay. So it used to be run by um, it's an annual thing that inside the NBA on TNT holds, and they get all these old players together and they talk about all these topics. Yeah. And one of the things the team, the guys would always talk about is a whole bunch of sort of normally 80s and 90s NBA players is they talk about sort of the problem of, I can't remember how they'd phrase it, but it's like the issue of wanting more. Yeah. I- so when you're, when you're a good team. Um, it's the disease of more. The disease of more, yeah. That Riley quote. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, so the disease of more. So when you're a good team, players get big heads and yeah. suddenly... You know, you have this great run where you're winning a lot, but then the individual players on the team, suddenly the winning's not enough and they want more minutes, they want more money, yeah. they want more exposure because they see what the winning can get them. Yeah. And they're less willing to sacrifice all those things to win. And my thought would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Celtics team was, because of who the leader was, you know, yeah. Russell at his core was a unselfish player who cared about winning more than anything he sat you know he didn't care about the points he put up um he didn't you know he'd get rebounds to win a game but he, he wasn't chasing stats he yeah. was chasing wins and because you've got a leader with that, that mentality and um, because you've got a coach like red Auerbach, who by all accounts had the same sort of mentality maybe my thought is they managed to avoid that disease of more yeah um because from the top they preach winning over everything and when you win you get what you want yeah is that about i'm actually pissed off you stole my main point <laughs> <laughs> sorry man. no 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 that was that was perfect you, you even had the, the, the desire for more things oh my god um but yeah no absolutely spot on um russell as as a teammate is just extremely selfless he loves his other teammates um there's actually a story of him seeing john havlicek um who's going to be one of his key teammates later on in the locker rooms looking a bit down looking a bit glim and russ said what's going on havlicek hadn't been paid because he needed a new contract and he'd wanted x amount yeah red had paid him three thousand less okay and russ just says don't worry leave it with me and then he goes he goes to red and he says pay him the extra $3,000, Red agrees, because it's Russ, but then yeah. he says, don't say that that I did this. Right. Because he knew that he would be long gone from the Celtics mm. while John was still on the team and he wanted his allegiance to be with the Celtics, not himself. Wow, okay. Yeah. So this huge... God, you... God. Every workplace should have a leader like that. I know. I want Bill Russell. <laughs> <Bill Ray. laughs> I want a manager that stands up for me like that. <laughs> Here we go. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. Um, like, and that's one huge factor. The selfless, selfless sort of leader in Russell is the key reason why the disease of more does not set into the Celtics. Importantly as well is every year this sort of Celtics team does surround Russ with a, with a championship level roster, of mm. course. But the interesting thing, thing is the way everyone's Russ sort of adapts his game and everyone adapts because not everyone who sort of comes in and leaves is the same player and as we're going to see going forward as players such as Sam Jones and John Havlicek 
emerge as the key scorers and you don't have that Bob Cousy, um, Russell's going to adjust to more of a passing big man. Yeah. And that passing big man is passing game is going to grow hugely. Now, the other sort of thing you've got to say is you've got to talk about the red Arback factor, mm. um, incredible coach. And you, you do compare him at, to Greg Popovich. Yeah. And they are sort of the two, it's interesting, they're the two coaches that have coached these big dynasties. And I also was thinking about, is it sort of easier to maintain a level of excellence, especially in the playoffs around a team that sort of relies on defense as opposed to offense? Oh, that's really interesting one, actually. Because like, if, you th- if you think about a team like like the Warriors and just think about some of the times they lost in the playoffs just because their, their shot wasn't on, not to say they weren't a good defensive team, but sort of building this dynasty around a team that is defensively excels and then on the offensive end just does enough. Yeah, like, I guess what I'd push back on that on with is that the Warriors were an excellent defensive team. Yeah. Like, the, you know, as much okay. as their offense was great, they were, like, a lot of the times... Maybe the, let's, go, let's go the Rockets then. Yeah. Ye- yes. But then even the Rockets team that pushed that Golden State Warriors team to seven... Yeah. Great defensive team. But I guess the common thread here is actually... Yeah. Yeah, actually, a, a consistently great defense is what you do need to win at the highest levels. Yeah. And probably the key point there is all the things that go into making a great defensive team give you the mindset you need Selfless to keep... Selfless mindset, yeah. Exactly, to keep yeah, that consistency. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as players age, like, say, Bob Cousy ages and Sam Jones age, yeah, you know, and their scoring drops off or they're a little bit more inefficient... What doesn't have to change is their defensive ability. Yeah. So you can deal with an aging team because they're still smarter defensively and they can still be at a high level defensively. Yeah. Um, which, I mean, Bill Russell does as well, right? Like, he ages a lot by the time he retires. But the thing about defense is you get smarter. Yeah. You learn how to expel your energy better. Yeah. So I, I actually... That's, that's another good point as well. The team, how they're going to have to sort of adapt as they get older, mm. as they age. I think I actually think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying. Say an example, maybe. Yeah. The or two teams, and the second one's gonna be a bit controversial, but the 2000s Pistons. Yeah. So they obviously only won one championship. Yeah. But people forget that they were at the top of the Eastern Conference for a very long time. Yeah. They weren't a great offensive team. Yeah. But they were so good defensively that they were able to stay at the top for long enough. Yeah. Mm. Even as they only scored just enough to get them over the edge. Yeah. That defense translated from year to year to year, even as they swapped a few players in and out. Yeah. And that again came from the mentality of their key players. Another team is the older Bulls team. You know, they weren't yeah. an explosive offensive team. Sure. They very much relied on a few key players. Obviously, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippen initiating the offense. What's his face coming off the bench? Oh, um, Kukoc. Yeah, Tony Kukoc coming off the bench. Mm. But they weren't an explosive offensive team. But over the 90s, they were, you know, consistently a great defensive team. Yeah. So, yeah. I Yeah, that Bill Sam's the other one I sort of thought of. Mm. Don't know. Yeah. 
it's just an interesting theory sort of that defensive model as opposed to the offensive model for sure i guess maybe just summarize then so what i'm hearing from you is that there's a couple of key factors yeah one is the mentality of the team and its leaders keeping them on that level-headed playing field of we're here to win and that's what our focus is but then also the management which i mean read our back was not just coach i think he was also the general manager plugging in new players and unearthing talent to replace aging players imagine replacing sam jones and bob Cousy with like casey jones and john havlicek right who are john havlicek for those who don't know ends up taking the boston into the 70s winning two championships with them in the 70s is one of the greatest players of all time in his own right and that's what great teams do is they unearth like say the crusaders well no but it's yeah, like yeah. to stay consistently at the top for very long you you've got to be able to replace your aging players yeah. with great young players and yeah spot that talent and develop that talent even though sometimes you know a lot of that talent wants to they might be able to start on another team yeah john havlicek is coming off the bench with the celtics to start but put them in the mindset where they want to contribute to this team learn how to win and then take it forward you know, maybe that's another thing, the management and then the coaching to be able to adapt your team to the players that you have. So, yeah, Bill Russell becoming more of an initiator of the offense, you know, taking the ball up on the fast break as he ages in his career, his assist numbers go up um, as they lose a sort of ball handling, creative point guard type player and yeah. they have more scorers that he then feeds the ball to. Yeah. So a range of factors. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely that did, to did, the selfishness plays into the team not falling to the disease of more. So the sort of, yeah, that selfishness and adaptability of the team are really the two sort of key points to why they can mm. be so consistently good. Um, well, consistently great. And they're going to continue the run in 64 to 65 and finish with their best record ever, 62 and 18. Russ with his fifth MVP and a career high in assists with 5.3 assists per game. Damn. Um, which is really huge for a centre at the time. And it was actually fifth in the league at the time. Dang. For Bill Russell, yeah. And they're going to beat Wilt in seven games again, then cruise past an Elgin Baylorless Lakers in the finals. He was injured to win their seventh in a row, I believe. Now, that brings us to the final season of the sort of 65 to, sorry, the 61 to 66 period. The maintaining basketball perfection i do realize i forgot to forgot to sort of cover the key teammates during this period and i'll cover them now because they sort of will flow through to the final chapter of russ's career so we've got sam jones who came in to join russell around um 1960 now sam jones is an elite scorer i i look at someone like chris middleton today and see a lot of similarities there we had john havlicek who sadi did mention before really great wing player again a really good scorer with great hustle casey jones imagine you put marcus smart back in the nba um 50 or 60 years ago probably like a rookie marcus smart no offense but a point guard who just absolutely leads on the defensive end and then finally tom sanders the starting power forward the big battler to help out russ on the boards and so these guys are going to go into 65 to 66 it's red Auerbach's final season with the celtics so you're losing a coach who's coached your team for i think like 15 16 years since its inception since, so probably 17 years and he is so he's had enough he's leaving 
and Russell's so Russell's contract before the season finishes and he's getting a new contract and he hears about Wilt Chamberlain Wilt Chamberlain's just signed a new contract with a $100,000 salary ooh and do you know this story? I have heard of it. I'll, I'll let you tell us on. Uh, thank you. And um, Russell, upon hearing this, he hears this at dinner. And of course, what does he do? He demands a salary from Reed of $100,000. $101,000. Did I pronounce that right? No. $100,000. What? I th- yeah, it's like, how do you even. one one hundred thousand dollars and one dollar and one dollar so one dollar more well, than it'll be one hundred thousand and one dollar okay yeah there we go one one dollar more than wilt very petty but also hilarious and he did get that salary upon getting the salary he's gonna call his father charlie and tell his father he doesn't have to work anymore i've just got this huge contract and his father's sort of gonna respond and say i don't want your money <laughs> Russell goes on about how, you know, you work at a factory, your your job's awful, like, mm. what, what are you talking about? And then his father's going to say, listen, son, I've given this company the best 30 years of my life. It's, I think it's only right if they, I give them some of the bad ones. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very good call. <laughs> I love that. So Russ is now at 31 years old. So he is starting to age, especially given the huge minutes he's playing. He hasn't played less than 44 minutes a night throughout his oh. career um, you so, gotta imagine this is the age where like recovery yeah like sports science is not there yet yeah you know? in fairness Russ didn't go to train Russ didn't train but that's, that's, <laughs> a, <laughs> that's a whole nother ball game <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting because this team sort of the Celtics team in Arbeck's final year they're really slowing down their pace is getting a lot slower while the rest of the league is speeding up mm. so that that image of the Celtics that fast paced team is, is sort of it's it's changing like you've got rookies like rick barry and like you mentioned before nate thurman are now entering the league and celtics are gonna finish without the best record for once wow so that means that they're not going to go straight to the eastern conference finals the first time they haven't gone straight there since russell is going to join the league they're going to have a hell of a run for arbex final season they're going to beat Oscar in five games. But best of five series. Best of five series. It's going to be the last game. They're going to then destroy Wilt in five games, despite the 76ers team having the best record in the league. Wow, okay. Yeah. yeah. And then again, they're going to go up against the Lakers in the final. It's going to go to seven, the seventh game again. And there's actually a bit of game footage out there, and it's really good to watch. The, the Celtics got big, and then... Um, what essentially happens is for Red's final game, what essentially Red Arbeck does when they win is he has a he, he has a cigar. Yeah. He has a victory cigar, which is brilliant. Um, I actually, um, I'm unsure how many of you guys know the victory cigar trope, but I is it Red Arbeck who started it? I am not sure, but I... I wouldn't be surprised. Have you heard the term human victory cigar? I have. Yeah. I have. Surely he didn't start it. Anyway, keep going. I'll so. keep going while you Google this. And he is going to light up the cigar when the Celtics are sort of up 10 with a few minutes to go. And he's going to light it up really early. And then <laughs> Jerry West is going to start popping off and making some crazy shots. The Lakers are going to bring it back to, I think it's going to come back to sort of like a two-point game. 
Red's on the sort of bench looking stressed. You know, he's got a cigar. It's supposed to be his victory cigar. And Russ is going to have the out-of-bounds throw. And he's sort of just got to get it into player. And he accidentally throws it off the backboard, giving the Lakers a chance to hit a two and tie and send it to OT. And then John Havlicek's going to famously, off the Lakers inbound, going to hustle across, steal the ball... And the Celtics are going to send out um, Red Auerbach on top with the eighth title in a row. Damn. Russ is going to finish 25 with 25 and 32, including 10 from 16 from the field and 5 from 5 from the line. Mm. And he's going to, he's going to in the series, he's going to average 23 and 24, top scoring for the Celtics, 54% from the field, 74% from the line. And there we go, eight in a row. 20 seconds remaining, an eight-point lead. Bill Russell goes in. He dunks it. That's it. 95-85. There you see Red Auerbach, a deliriously happy man. There's 16 seconds left and only a six-point difference. And in this type of game, the Celtics better get that ball over half court. There you see Red Auerbach as he's lighting up his cigar with Governor John Volpe standing by. Volpe just blowing out the match. And there is Red with his victory cigar. Six seconds remaining. And how quickly you can score points. In it comes to Ellis who shoots. Ellis hits. And it's 95-93 with four seconds remaining. Casey Jones. Casey holding the ball. That's it. The game is over. And John Havlicek is running for his life. And Bill Russell. Eight great world's championship certainly is an unbelievable feat brilliant so we've made it to the end of basketball perfection um it's obviously been a very long journey and for (laughs) that reason um we've decided to split off bill russell into two parts yes i can't believe we've actually got to the stage with this podcast series that we're doing a two-part episode but the career of Bill Russell is just so, so dense. Yeah. Um, I mean, good work, Sam. Like, you carried so much of that season by season. There was a lot of detail in there. So, yeah, it's... It's a very fitting guy for to be our first sort of two-part episode player. You you've, you can't fit him into one episode, I don't think. Yeah, so much to talk about. We haven't even touched on the end of his career. or um, Yeah. We'll talk about what's in the next episode in a few seconds, but why don't you summarise for the listeners, Sam, I guess everything that we've just gone through. Yeah, so where are we at? Where are we at with Bill Russell's career? So obviously a very tough upbringing growing up sort of before the civil rights movement in Louisiana mm. um, and then moving to San Fran after his... Mother's going to pass away at age 12. Very difficult life to sort of grow up in. Mm. But then despite this, on the basketball court, he is going to be a monster and he's going to break the NBA. He's going to break the game of basketball. We see this through his athleticism and his impact on the defensive end. And essentially what it comes down to is um, his basketball mind. He's one of the greatest thinkers the NBA is ever going to see. Absolutely. I mean, something that stood out to me as we're sort of looking on this is he came in when the, you know, basketball itself was still in such a formative stage and the NBA was just starting to sort of redefine the way basketball was played and the man just blew it wide open. Yeah. Um, And super unheralded as well. Yeah. You know, really average um, high school player goes in, 
dominates in college then comes into the NBA and changes the game literally and so a very like an incredible start to his career and then as you sort of laid out that excellence is just maintained isn't it and yeah yeah I mean and like that excellence there's several parts to why the Celtics team is going to be so good for so long um where we're at they have nine championships in 10 seasons mm. insane numbers probably the greatest team in I'd say American professional sports. Yep, absolutely. Um, and a huge part of that is Russell, his selflessness, mm. um, his ability to adapt and get other people on board, and his absolute love of the Celtics as a team. Yeah. I mean, you're thinking about the greatest winner in NBA history at that point, right? And that's without his career having even finished. Um, you know, you think about the start of the NBA we talked about George Mike and sort of what, five championships in yeah, six seasons yeah. and Bill Russell just got and blitzed him yeah yeah, absolutely um, and this obviously this, the season he, he lost is the one where he was injured you, yeah like you, you legitimately can't beat this man in the playoffs but we still have three seasons to go despite him already being the greatest winner yeah and we left I mean we leave it I guess on a really precarious place they've won the seven game series yeah you know in the toughest of conditions um they're aging and they're just about to lose red yeah so you imagine if you were the basketball media at the time and this is the end of that season where do you see them like what's yeah. going to happen in the for the remaining years of Bill Russell's career yeah for sure like red's up such a central part of that team it would almost be like tim duncan sort of towards the end of his career losing popovich yes and there would be a lot of speculation around how that team's really going to continue with without that coach that key coach for sure and i mean as as much as you talk about bill russell breaking basketball it's actually the partnership that yeah. broke basketball is the it was the coach that drafted him yeah and who envisioned the way that he could play and that celtics could play together yeah and maintain that basketball excellence so I guess I'm, I'm very excited to delve into um, I guess that final part of his career and then most importantly for Russell you know something we've talked about a lot his like his legacy I mean after as well you know the off the court stuff yeah um, the civil rights stuff his legacy as a player his greatness and I think as a wee teaser for the listeners one thing that we're particularly excited about is Sam and I are going to really delve into this discussion about um, how you define greatness in the NBA, what makes yeah. a great player. And I'm really excited to share that conversation with you guys. Yeah, and it's like a perfect sort of player to cover that topic on because we've got a guy who's maybe lacking a bit on the individual side but is the game's greatest winner. Mm. Um, so it'll be really interesting sort of to see some ideas you have there, Sadi, on how we value greatness. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you're listening to this, there's been a bit of a hiatus as well since um, the last episode. But don't worry, part two is going to come out a week after this one, we promise this time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're recording this, what's the date? Uh, the date is the 10th of June. 10th of June. You, you're you probably going to hear it maybe 2024, but yeah. that's all good. It'll, it'll get there in the end, which is what matters. Um, hopefully by that point, my Nuggets have won the 2021 NBA Championship, Sam. I think the Bucks still have a better chance of that, mate. <laughs> Right, so thank you for listening. Definitely tune in next week for part B yes. of Bill Russell. Um, but for now, we're going to pass it back on to the man himself, and he's going to just share a bit on his time with the Celtics and how he feels about this team. The Celtics were a way of life to me. A 
group of people so diverse you cannot imagine, working together day in and day out for a common goal. I thoroughly enjoyed my teammates. And I always said that when I left the Celtics, I could not go to heaven because they'd be a step down. I am pure, 100% Celtic. I think if you slashed my wrist, the blood would have been green.